Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. So I'm so glad to have Srikumar Rao here with me in New York. Welcome to my podcast, Srikumar. You're more than welcome, Vesta. It's my pleasure to be on your podcast. Thank you. So we are in the middle of New York and you are actually transiting, you're kind of moving around, traveling a lot, and you will be heading off tomorrow. So I think that we really had good flow to be able to meet up. Yes, the universe played a helping hand. You see? <laughs> you know a lot about these things, I know. We'll come back to that. As an introduction, uh, Dr. Srikumar Rao is one of the top MBA professors in the U.S. He's a legendary motivational teacher and a pioneer of practicing happiness. He has helped thousands of executives and entrepreneurs all over the world discover deeper meaning and achieve quantum leaps in effectiveness and become more creative and inspiring leaders. So I think you have a wonderful task, I mean, to help people achieve more, to feel less stress and actually experience uh, joy and richness in life. So I'm thinking no wonder that you have a fan club, I know. <laughs> <laughs> which is unique. But is it a myth that you uh, become happy when you succeed or is it vice versa? It's neither a myth nor is it vice versa. And let me explain. We're all wanting creatures and we believe that we are incomplete. We're not full and we need something outside which will fulfill us. And Typically, if you're ambitious, bright, and educated, and most of the persons who come to my programs fit those categories, then you desire success, you desire fame, you desire uh, money, financial uh, plenty. And the idea is that if I get this, then I will be happy. And for a time, it succeeds. You know, you have an ambitious goal for yourself, and you succeed, your company revenues hit new targets, you're selected as best company to work for, or a leader in your industry, and you say, gee, I made it. And there is that temporary feeling of fullness, but it doesn't last. And very soon you're out there and you want something else. But because we have that temporary sense of fullness, we keep pursuing goals one after the other. Now, mind you, I think it's wonderful to pursue goals, but if you pursue goals with the objective of becoming happy, it won't work because that is fleeting and it disappears. Equally, if you don't have it, it doesn't mean that you cannot be happy and how you can be happy, period, without it being marked or targeted to some external accomplishment, that's what my work is all about. Yeah, and I also think it's important sometimes to just lean back and trust, you know, to choose to believe. So if any company uh, wants a great, the best strategy, I would say believe. <laughs> Because if you believe, you know, things start to happen. I mean, believe for real. And it's the same, I think, in private lives in a way. So like feeling as if something has your back in a way. But why is it so difficult for most of us to have that complete belief? Because we've been conditioned against it. And especially in America, there is this very strong notion that we can accomplish anything. And by we, it means us as individuals. I can go do it. No matter what the obstacles are, I can overcome them. So there is this very strong belief in I and me and we as individual entities. And we kind of forget that we are really connected to a much bigger whole. 
and uh, we have never learned that sometimes the best way to advance is to surrender. Don't struggle with the wave. Let the wave carry you. And the wave will do a far better job of carrying you than you can by struggling. Yeah, that's a great way of expressing it. And you can guide the wave. That is what most of us don't recognize. How do we do that? Well, it's a combination. It's an art more than it's a science. First of all, you see where your natural inclinations are taking you, what you're particularly talented in. You have to marry that to a greater cause. In my view, you cannot achieve success, you cannot achieve happiness unless you're part of something which is bigger than you are. You're doing something where you are of service to a broader community. You're doing something which will leave this broader community in some way better than before. And your job is to be of service to make that happen. You have tremendous flexibility in defining both the greater good and the greater community. But unless you can find something which is bigger than you are, in the service of which you can subsume, if not your whole life, at least a big chunk of it, mm. then you are going to live a mediocre existence. You're not going to be truly happy. Mm. But once you start moving in that direction and you throw your intent out and you strive, but at the same time you relax into your intention, then all kinds of serendipitous opportunities uh, occur. You'll find that your life takes strange directions you meet the exact persons you need who can help you achieve what you need to achieve. It's synchronistic. You have to experience that. And when you do, you will find that every day is a blast. But that is against what the prevailing culture is. And that's why we find ourselves struggling where no struggle is necessary. Hard work is necessary, but when you're in this state, it doesn't feel like work. It's just something you're enjoying. Hmm. Is this how you feel about your work? That it's a very your large life chunk rather of the than time. work? Yes. Hmm. My life is very much that way. Like right now, am I working or am I having fun? I honestly don't know. <laughs> I'm having fun having you here, that's for sure. <laughs> I'm having fun too. So. <laughs> so, and in terms of synchronicity and flow and all that, right? So, but if we go back to you, um, what people talk about very much now, you know, what's your passion and what's the purpose of what you do and so on. What is your passion? I have to answer that question on several levels, Vesna. On one level, my passion is I want to help persons realize that they can live a perfect life. And a perfect life not defined by external achievement, but by internal who am I being. And the more you receive clarity on that, the more you find the external life does in fact turn out better than you expected it would. But on another level, my passion is helping people understand that the sense of separation they have, the sense of an individual identity and an ego, that's an illusion. And deep down, we are all connected. We are a single whole. And once you recognize that and the feeling of separateness falls away, that's when you have true joy and it never ends. That is a spiritual quest. I'm on that myself. I don't know where I am in that journey, but frankly, at this point, I no longer care. I just go each day and say, am I feeling more like that than I am before? And helping other people realize that, that is also a passion. 
Because now I want to state something, Vesna, for your listeners. The only thing we ever do in life is we work on ourselves. So all of the roles that we play, I'm a businessman, I'm a father, I'm a mother, you know, I'm a, a son. All of those are roles that we play. And we play the roles to the best of our ability. But in playing those roles, what we're really doing is we're working on ourselves. And that's the only thing we ever do in life. We work on ourselves. It's good to do this consciously rather than unconsciously, because when you do it unconsciously, we're far more likely to make pretty drastic errors. Even when we do it consciously, we make errors, but fewer. And eventually, we get to the point where we recognize that the errors are also a part of our journey. So it's, it's fun living in the world that way. And then, uh, but is there anything to say like too much error so that we create unnecessary entropy in the, in the environment around us? Ah, uh, yes, because what happens is we are conditioned and many of the conditionings that uh, we have been subject to are not necessarily in our best interest, given the model that I've just outlined. Mm -hmm. So you do the best you can mm -hmm. and uh, you will make errors because you've been conditioned to that and every time you do, you pick yourself up, dust yourself off and move on again. And when you do that, you'll find each time you make an error, you recognize it's an error, but you don't beat yourself up and say, I did it again, and you go on. And that's really the best way to live life. What is the point with life? Well, that is a problem for thinking mind, right? Because as intellectually curious creatures, and we are type A people who live in our heads, we always think, there has to be a reason for everything. And let me find out what the reason is. But perhaps there isn't a reason. Life just is. The universe exists. That's it. And we seek with our minds to find a reason. And we cook up all kinds of stories. And we create gods and how gods relate to us. But ultimately, there isn't any. It just is. We feel ourselves separate, and because we feel ourselves separate, we suffer. But there is a process by which you will eventually recognize that this feeling of separateness is an illusion. And the moment you drop it, you recognize that you're part of this great entity that always has been, always will be, and is. And you're no different from it. And then there are no questions because there's no one left to ask the questions. Mm. But when you meet up with a lot of business people, you know, leaders of companies and so on, are they truly generally interested in these dimensions as well, more and more? More and more, definitely. And almost by definition, the kinds of persons who come to my program or seek me out for coaching or others are interested in this. Otherwise, they wouldn't have come to me in the first place. There aren't many people in the business arena who are talking about things like this. Mm -hmm. I think I'm one of the very, very few persons doing so. Mm -hmm. But what I'm finding is that executives, even senior executives and CEOs, are discovering that this is a model which helps them. It helps them in their private life because they're more calm, serene, mm -hmm. accepting of the outlook. They're able to function more effectively. Mm -hmm. And more important, it helps them in their day-to-day -day activities. They're far less stressed, they're far less concerned about achieving goals. That doesn't mean they don't have goals, but they recognize that goals are outside their control and they're at ease when dealing with it. So their life improves by 
quantum leaps. So yes, there are more people who are more receptive to it. And uh, certainly the ones who come to me are uh, very, very much in that direction. Otherwise, they wouldn't come to me in the first place. What would you say are, you know, transformational points in your life that have influenced you the most so far? I came to America as a student and I got my PhD from Columbia Business School. And I went out and worked in corporate life and I was initially extremely successful. Then I thought, I was also arrogant and I thought, gee, I accomplished all of this by myself. And I got burnt out by corporate politics. So then I went to a university environment where I thought there would be no politics. I was wrong. You know, there is a lot of politics in universities. And uh, then I stagnated and people who were my peers overtook me in terms of financial success. University professors don't really live very well. And then I started feeling burnt out. You know, what happened to me? You know, I had such a brilliant early career, I had such great education, and here I am stuck. All my life I'd been reading a lot of books, spiritual biography, mystical autobiography. They would take me to a wonderful place and then I came back to the real world and I was frustrated and stuck. So I decided that if all of this was only useful when you were sitting quietly thinking peaceful thoughts, but not when you came to the hurly-burly, it was useless. But somehow I knew that wasn't true. I knew that this was very valuable, maybe even the only thing that was valuable. I just hadn't figured out how to make use of it. Mm. So one day I came up with a brilliant idea, my brilliant idea, which is why don't I create a course which takes the teachings of the world's great masters, mm -hmm. strips them of religious, cultural and other connotations and adapts them so that they're acceptable to intelligent people in a post-industrial society. And the thought of doing something like that made me come alive. Mm -hmm. So that's when I started the course and gradually it took over my life. And now this is the only thing I do. I am tremendously satisfied. I get up in the morning and I honestly don't know whether I'm working or playing. I meet the most wonderful people. And in fact, our interview right now is an example of that because I'm always running into people who have an interest in that and want to explore further. And they are the people I want to hang out with. So it's all working together beautifully. I don't know what each day will bring, but I'm perfectly okay. I'm leaving early tomorrow morning and I'm conducting two workshops for uh, CEOs of companies. And I don't know how they're going to react, but the very fact that they're coming to my talk tells me, mm -hmm. yes, they are interested. And at least some among them is firewood waiting for a spark. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. I just do the best I can and whatever happens, happens. And this is in London, right, that you're going or? No, tomorrow no. I'm going to Chicago. It's I'm Chicago. going to London okay. in two weeks. Mm -hmm. And I'm also um, wanting to discuss with you what I would call the long-term formula or long-term solution for companies. What do you see? What do they tell you? What do they believe in and, and uh, as a long-term formula? Well, let me tell you what they currently believe in and let me tell you why I think it's unsustainable. What many companies currently believe in is and business schools are complicit in propagating this point of view, is that you have to, quote, maximize shareholder wealth, or you have to maximize income or revenues. And I think that that is very lopsided, and companies have lost sight of the fact that their primary purpose is to solve a problem. 
and they have to run themselves so that they benefit all stakeholders. There's a lot of lip service being paid to that. We even have things like B corporations and corporate social responsibility. But by and large, I view the efforts of most companies in that direction as window dressing. They're not really committed to that. But this is changing because increasingly the millennials are not putting up with the business model that the boomers and the Generation X has put in. They're demanding something different. And I see signs that it is going to come about. I see science in many ways, you know, major corporations, you know, Fortune 50 type companies are now calling me in to speak to their uh, employees. I'm finding that the employees resonate with what I'm talking about. So there is a, a shift coming in, a cultural perception that business has gone awry and we ought to set it straight. It's still in the early stages, but I think that is gaining traction. Mm -hmm. Do you find that certain parts of our world are more ahead than the U.S., for example? Actually, in the U.S., it's kind of split because there are companies, some of them smaller companies, but fast growing, where they are much, much more in tune with uh, the view that I just articulate. In Europe, I can tell you that I find a great deal of receptivity to what I'm talking about. I just came back from Barcelona, where I spoke to a number of organizations and they completely understood that said yes this is what we would like to see and in the rest of the world I'm not quite sure India is a place where since these ideas essentially grew in the East these should be very well received and I find that by and large businesses in India are less inclined in this direction than companies in America or Europe Everybody will move in that direction, but I think that the cutting edge is here in America and in Europe. And uh, when you find these um, leaders and companies, for example, in Barcelona that say, yeah, this is what we want, can you help them get there quicker or do they, is it a process they have to go through? It's both. I can help them see things as a result of which stuff which was in the back of their mind as an amorphous idea suddenly becomes crystal clear. Mm. And then they say, hey, you know, I can actually implement it. I have a coaching client now who's a president of a very large company in uh, Switzerland. And he was a student of mine when uh, I was teaching at Columbia Business School. So he's known me for a very long time. And then he reached out now and he is actually taking the ideas and we discuss an idea each time we speak and uh, converting that into a series of exercises which are relevant to his company and putting his key executives through that and reporting back to me on how they are uh, absorbing it. So I see a distinct trend in that direction. I have another coaching client right now and uh, she is a surgeon and she is expanding very rapidly in private practice and hiring many more surgeons and she wants everybody to be exposed to the kind of thing that I did with Mind Valley. Mm -hmm. If you would assume that you have all doors open to you and all kinds of resources available, is there anything in particular that you would definitely go about and innovate or change immediately? Yes. I'd like several things. I'd like people to understand that the world we live in is not a real world. We have constructed it. We have constructed it with our mental chatter, the mental chatter that we entertain and the mental models that we hold. And we think we're living in a real world, but we're not. We're living in 
a reality, not the reality, but we think it is the reality. So when persons understand that, they also are liberated because if you're living in a reality and you don't like it, you can deconstruct the parts of it that you don't like and build it up again. And then somebody would say, yeah, yeah, sure, but how do I do that? That's what my entire program is about. Because, Westner, look, at some turning point, and the two most important turning points are your birthday and New Year's uh, Eve, we all go, you know, from now on things are going to be different. I'm going to eat healthy, exercise regularly, quit smoking, stop procrastinating. Generally, it doesn't work because we try to implement these resolutions by an effort of will. When you try to implement resolutions by an effort of will, you're doing violence to yourself. Odds are very good you won't succeed. But even if you do succeed, there's probably a byproduct you're not very happy about. The process that I have developed enables you to make changes. These are significant changes, and they last. And the reason that happens is because you don't make these changes by an effort of will. You make it by examining the mental models that you hold, which lead you to behave in particular manners. And once you make changes in your mental model, you don't even have to think about making behavioral changes. They happen automatically. It's a very powerful process, and it's long-lasting. Mm -hmm. So that's what my work is all about. That's how you go about changing the reality that you experience. And once you find out how powerful it is, and it works for you in a couple of cases, you become a convert and then say, okay, you know, there are other situations that I can tackle with using this. But can you give an example of, of such a thing? Oh, absolutely. Okay, let me give you a, an example where we had someone who was an investment banker, and uh, he was putting in very long hours. And it was causing a lot of friction with his wife. You know, every time he came back, she would snap at him for doing again. He missed many family functions. You know, he missed his children's school recitals and so on. And she would accuse him of not caring for the family. And in his head, she was being unreasonable because he was putting in long hours and making good money to care for the family. You know, in his head, he was doing that for the family and she was uh, you know, snappish. They'd get into fights. And uh, one day when uh, he was doing the cl uh, my program, we have an exercise called alternate reality exercise. And somebody suggested to him that when his wife got angry at him when he came, it was because she wanted to spend time with him. She loved him and, you know, she didn't want to be apart. And, you know, that it was not a particularly good way of expressing it, but that's what was happening. So uh, he said, okay, let me work on that. And the next time when uh, uh, he came and she scolded him for coming late and said, okay, you know, son's gone to sleep. You can't even see him anymore. Dinner's there. And instead of reacting angrily as he normally would, you know, he heard, oh, she's saying, I miss you. So I said, <laughs> it must have been really difficult for you, you know, for, you know and something had happened on a domestic. It must have been that was the first time he said something like that, and he genuinely wasn't angry at her for reacting the way she did. And she looked at him as if something strange had happened and stalked off. But he did that again and again, and gradually the entire nature of their interaction changed. She stopped scolding, they started talking, they became intimate again, and it was a complete transformation in their relationships. Because as long as he was living in the world where 
she is unreasonable and she doesn't recognize how hard I'm working for the family. I moved down to, she wants to spend more time with me and unfortunately circumstances are such that it isn't, but she needs me and I, I have to do what I can. The dynamics changed immediately. When you change, the universe changes. And the best way to experience this is to actually try out and see, yes, it does happen. And it's very powerful. Mm. And my experience in terms of potential conflicts or disagreements in a business environment is that whenever it happens, if everybody directs their energy and intention on something bigger than what's going on, right? It kind of goes away. It's like a shadow that you're approaching. Absolutely. Right? Or even if it doesn't go away, it the tension dissipates to such an extent that you can come up with a workable solution. Absolutely true. The intent is what is important. And, and if you could give, of course, lots of advice, but let's pick one of the most important one from you uh, to leaders who, however you chose to define leaders, uh, what would that be? Act and live in an other-centered universe. Too often our leaders, so-called leaders, are very busy figuring out what they can do so that the organization prospers. But the real intent is, how can I get ahead in the organization? How can I benefit? How can I get more money, higher position, greater acclaim, things of that nature? And you tend to view people as mechanisms, not what's good for Vesna, but how can I make Vesna more effective? Because if I do, then she will accomplish her goals. If she accomplishes her goals, I accomplish my goals and good things happen to me. So I really don't care what happens to Vesna. Well, I do, but not so much. I do care that Vesna perform satisfactorily so that I can benefit. So there is a tendency to view other people as mechanisms for your own benefit. And I would like them instead to see other people as these are human beings and for some reason, karma, destiny, whatever we are together, what is it that I can, can do to help this person reach his or her potential to be a happy, fulfilled human being? And it is my job to engineer the structure of my company and whatever I can so that in the process of doing that, the company and I also benefit. But that's secondary. It's secondary to helping every human being I run into achieving his or her highest potential. Mm. And, and what I often see uh, in, in Europe, at least, is that when companies are in some kind of temporary or long-term uh, struggle, they typically do the first step as, okay, cost-cutting, you know, typical reaction, based on fear, of course. Instead of thinking, what is it that makes our business model or reality not relevant? What do we need to not only tweak, but maybe we need to rethink the business formula as such. But there is no time for that. Uh, rather, everybody is into the fear mode, cutting costs, making sure that their position doesn't go away and all that. Companies, very many of them are in the situation. What do you, kind of advice do you give to them? Vesna, you said in Europe, I would like to suggest that this is far, far, far more prevalent in the United States than it is. In fact, Europe probably picked it up from America. And every day you read in the news, oh, so-and-so cut uh, the workforce by 
you know, 15%, and immediately the stock price goes up and the leaders are applauded for, quote, taking hard decisions, unquote. They never really consider the human cost of the decisions that are made. That's a byproduct. This is the thing that I am against in the first place because the growth happened haphazardly. The notion that uh, we're going to bring people and we don't really care whether or not they succeed in the long run. We, of course, we want them to, but if it doesn't, we can always lay them off. So I think the thinking has to change from at all levels. In other words, when you bring someone on, it should be the intention. We're going to keep this person on for, if not forever, a very long time. We are going to give this person opportunities to grow. We are going to evaluate this person to find out if he or she is using those opportunities. If there is not a fit, then we will let him go. But if there is a business downturn, then we have to figure out some way by which the suffering is collective as opposed to we're going to offshore in a few people who are off. So uh, I remember in an early case where a Japanese company, this was back in the 70s, so we're talking a long time ago, was uh, suffering from something like this and they really had to lay off people. And the CEO suggested, uh, well, why don't we all take a salary cut rather than lay off anybody and the higher up you are, the bigger the salary cut you take and we will work together and come up with a new product. And uh, they were very successful and uh, executives of that company actually called up competitors to say, we've fully trained workers, would you like to hire them? And if you do, you get them at half price because we'll pay half the salary and you pay half the salary. And it worked beautifully. I'm happy to notice, the, to point out to you that in America there is uh, a company, it's called the Barry Vermiller Companies, run by Bob Chapman, who has become a good friend of mine, and he follows exactly the same policy. I remember an instance, and I wrote about it too, where he took over a company which was in dire trouble, and he announced, I'm not going to lay off anybody, but everybody will take a four-week furlough you don't get paid and you take a four-week leave. And many of the executives took that, but they showed up for work anyway. And they were able to turn that company around. So that attitude is something that I think more companies need to have. I see nascent signs that this recognition is coming in, but we really need to go a lot further in that direction. What about you? If you were to give advice to yourself like 15, 20 years ago, what would that be? Continue, have faith in the universe, you know, continue doing what you're doing and begin earlier. It took me far too long to realize that this is what I really should be spending all my time doing because I was holding on to security. I was a tenured marketing professor at a major university and, uh, you know, you need the security. And, uh, you know, if I was doing things all over again, I'd have been doing exactly the same thing, only I'd have started a lot earlier. And we all have that kind of, uh, I think, base case that we want some kind of level of uh, yes. comfort and, and so on, right? And every time we get out of that comfort zone, we are happy yes. <laughs> that we did it eventually. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, for sure. I think that's a common denominator you share with a lot of other people. They would say, okay, love to do what I did now, but I should have done it like 10 years or so yes. earlier. Uh, but life is long, uh, so uh, uh, there's still way to go. And that leads me into one other question, which is, 
nowadays, especially with the digitalization and, and so on, a lot of classic roles, job roles are going away and so on. What is your take on what are all people going to do eventually? That's a very good question, Vesna. I think that what is happening in the world today is different from what's happened in the world before. They always talk about parallels. Oh, look, we had industrialization as a result of which the agricultural economy, you know, came to a halt. And, you know, at one time, 70% of the population of America was involved in agriculture. And now it's something like 2% to 2.5%. And we have these massive combines that do that. But you really don't have to worry because, look, industrialization came about and that happened. And now if you look at it, uh, you know, probably half the population are working in uh, sectors that didn't even exist. They're working in occupations that didn't exist 25 years ago, information technology, engineer, companies that provide software to guard against virus attacks and things like that. They just didn't exist. Mm-hmm. But what is happening now is as a result of confluence of factors, especially technology and the spread of artificial intelligence, uh, which is getting smarter and smarter and smarter. We're just on the very early phases of a very sharp uptake, almost a hockey stick uh, Mm -hmm. progression in what artificial intelligence can do. Large numbers of people who are in very well-paying, even white-collar professions, are going to become redundant redundant in the sense of their the skills that are spent so long acquiring are no longer relevant and this can happen even to you know surgeons or uh, physicians it can happen to computer engineers across the board we as a society are not equipped to cope with this a long time ago peter drucker was asked what people would say was the major change. And he said, if you look back in 100 years and talk about what are the major changes that happened, we're not going to talk about industrialization or the industrial age. We're not going to talk about the telephone or cars or uh, computers. What has changed is for the very first time in history, large numbers of people had discretionary leisure time. And they had no idea how to handle it that's even more true today. We have discretionary leisure time. We don't know how to handle it. We get into needless squabbles over tribal matters. We spend too much time on controlled substances and alcohol and uh, stuff like media, which is a giant sopophoric. So that situation is getting worse. And in my view, the only way in which we can function in an environment like that are number two, two ways. Uh, First of all, each individual has to recognize that he or she has mental chatter and can take you to all kinds of places if you don't get a handle on that. And your mental chatter is not just your mental chatter, but it also concerns me because if it leads you to a place where you say, you know, all of these people are aliens and they're misguided and what I really ought to do is cut off their heads because they're so horribly misguided they don't deserve to live. And we're seeing a lot of that kind of thing happening. And the other part of it is we have immense, immense disparity in aggregation of wealth. And this is basically unsustainable. So we have to have some kind of a mechanism where people act because they are trying to do somebody good on a broader scale than their narrow, narrow, narrow definition of themselves and their 
universe. And both of those things have to happen. If not, we will face another cataclysm, which will probably be a lot worse than the Second World War. I am guardedly optimistic because I can see that there are many people who are recognizing it. There are more people who are working in uh, non-government organizations affecting you know, climate change, animal welfare, things like that than there have ever been. And I'm waiting to see how it all plays out. And on a positive note, people are saying, yeah, but I mean, even if a lot of skill sets are not going to be needed, that was the result of our education and all, it's not a big deal because at the end, we will do much more advanced, creative, interesting things that we ever did before. So what are those creative, better things that we will all do? Still coming out, Vesna, and one of the problems that we're having is the creative things that we can do or should do are increasingly being handled by machines. You know, I could be a really great chess player, but uh, it's been 15 years now, the most powerful chess player in the world is a computer. Uh, they used to talk about Go is so much more complicated than chess and it's going to be a century before someone can and the most powerful Go player in the world is now a computer. So a lot of the things that we say, okay, these are skilled ones are not going to remain that way and computers can take over big chunks of that. Uh, but what is left to us is our development as individuals and the development of our consciousness. We can raise the level of our consciousness and ultimately that is the area where we will all be focusing on. But in order to do that, we have to come to a point where a significant number of people, preferably the majority of people, start recognizing that spiritual growth is where we should be focusing on because of the freedom afforded to us by what's happening in the uh, machine and artificial intelligence world. Mm. We're heading in that direction, but we're very, very, very far away. And we will need, of course, a uh, totally new system. Everything we know now, like called employment, salary, pension, whatever. All of that is going to break well, down. It's already breaking down. Exactly. So it's just a matter of time, at least. So now, I mean, and I'm not even thinking about, at least in where I live in, and, and spend a lot of my time in Europe, I don't even think about pension and, and, and thinking about people like 60, 65 years old or whatever as some kind of an exit uh, situation. Rather, what are they going to do later? How can they transform and so on? And then I think people in general have a difficulty to understand that we need to grow on a, as you say, as collective consciousness. But it sounds so fluffy. What is that? Is that something I can say is my job here in life to grow my consciousness? How do I go about that? You know, where do I go to do that? <laughs> With whom do I do that? <laughs> That's an extremely good question, Vesna. And the short answer to that is look at what your spirit calls you. A lot of the times we are inspired by people whom we read about, by articles that we read, television programs that we watch, we hear speeches, mm -hmm. and we are inspired by people doing something. And most of the time what happens is we are inspired for five minutes, an hour, a day, and then we move on. Every time you're inspired by someone, what I recommend you do is write it down. Who inspired you? Why? What was that person doing? How did you learn about that person? Keep a journal, keep a diary. And at the end of a few months, go back and look at those and see which of these persons still inspires you. 
reach out to that person, offer something that you can do to help that person do whatever he or she is doing. Mm -hmm. Because when you do that, you're helping make the world a little bit better. And when you start doing things like that, then that's when you move into the other centered universe that we talked about earlier, and you will find your fulfillment. Your ideal life is not something that you discover one day. It is something that you put together like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. And one day you wake up and say, I am in my ideal life. The sooner you start the process, the better, because this is not a days and weeks thing we're talking about. This is an years and decades journey that we're talking about. So you begin early by paying attention to what inspires me. What is it that continuously and consistently inspires me and how can I bring more of that into my life? So if you do make that a deliberate process, you will find that you will succeed. So, so true. Who inspires you? I mean, you meet a lot of interesting people, I know, sure. but... Uh... Uh, if I had to pick who are the people who had a, a big influence on me, I'll mention two or three right now, and uh, I'll tell you where you can find the others. One person, probably the biggest single influence on me, was an Indian sage called Ramana Maharshi, who lived in the 19th century and into the midpoint of the 20th century, died just before I was born. Then another person who inspired me is a Jesuit priest called Anthony DeMello, who passed away about 20 years ago. Then there was a American professor of psychology who gave up his uh, academic career to become a wandering sadhu. He was, as a professor, he was known as Richard Alpert. As a sadhu, he became known as Baba Ramdas. And he wrote a book, which is one of the momentous achievements of the counterculture movement of the 60s called Be Here Now and he's written other books too. He has been a big influence on me as well. So those are some, but if more of your readers are interested, let me direct them to my website, which is www.therauinstitute.com. And I do encourage your visitors to go to my website and register. But on my website, there is a copy of my, the syllabus for my program, and that has a section called life-changing books. And all of the folks who inspired me are listed there. Mm -hmm. Oh, great. I'll have a look then. And um, what do you think for all companies in the world, if there is one, one thing that they all should kind of focus on, what, is, what would that be? What is the most important thing? Is there a common denominator? I would like all companies to focus on everybody from the chief executive officer down through you know, the senior executives down through the mid-level executives, focus on being servant leaders. And by servant leaders, what I mean is that it is their job to serve. They are in their position not to accumulate money or power or hierarchy or boss around people, but to serve. And they serve several constituents. They serve the customer, they serve all the people who are their team members and work within the company. They serve their vendors, so the persons who they purchase products from, and they serve the shareholders. So the idea is to be of service, not that you're going to take care of one class at the expense of everybody else, 
But this is a balancing act, and I have to make sure that all of these parties are receiving from me what they need in order to be better human beings. And I have constantly that as their intent for each day. And uh, I mean, given that I've been part of the, let's call it corporate world for at least two decades, and I'm comparing with the experience of my experience and other people's experience, exactly this, you know, how can you inspire people to be a better human being? And then in the role as an employee, etc. of course, very few uh, leaders, HR directors and so on, that are doing that on a deeper level. It's very kind of superficial. You know, we're still going through different uh, tick the boxes exercises and so on. Nobody's really genuinely showing a true intention to understand what is the blueprint of of Srikumar or Vesna or somebody else. And if they did, and they don't have to go super deep, but a little bit deeper, people will tell them what is triggering them and what, what is itching and what is hurting and they could get so much more out of it, both from a financial economic point of view, but also from uh, you know creating an atmosphere in the company that is really based on on a bigger thing, uh, understanding these people. And I don't see that in real life. I, I mean, a lot of companies might be good exceptions that I don't know of, but there are not very many. There are not very many, and this is not the norm yet. Mm-hmm. I would like it to become the norm, and I'm doing what I can to help it become the norm by talking to CEOs and I'm not trying to persuade them. I'm letting them discover that perhaps this is a better way to live, not only for the organization, but for me personally. Some are ready to hear the message and some are not. I work with those who are ready to hear the message. And I think that this change is coming and it will have to because the present mode of organization is unsustainable. So it will collapse. Whether it will collapse in two years or 20 years, I don't have a clue, but it will collapse because it cannot carry on. Mm -hmm. And it will be replaced by something better. Mm -hmm. So I'm guardedly optimistic. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, I'm trying to do my little bit to help bring that change come sooner rather than later. For some reason, I've come to think about the uh, generation of my son now, he's 16, 17, and so on. A lot of people who are listening to this are typically having kids you know, in the age of whatever it is, 5, 15, and so on. Is there any advice to that generation that you have? Yes. Actually, the advice is not very different from what I have the oldest, but the, I'd like to add that you really are in charge of remaking the world because my generation has screwed it up pretty badly for you, and I apologize for that. But uh, at the same time, there is an opportunity here for you to change things around. So start focusing on the human being, start focusing on how can you help improve the human condition. That's what the function of uh, companies are and that's what your function is to be of service. And you get to decide how you want to be of service, to whom you want to be of service, and how much you want to be of service. But uh, if you all make that decision, then the world will be a different place. And what do you think um, the world needs most at this time? I would say the world needs leaders who are not afraid to bring this up and talk about it openly. 
too often we're talking about people who are making dry speech. Oh, we've got to improve the economy. We've got to get everybody jobs. We've got to, and they don't really mean it. They're just saying it because it's a good sound bite. It's like when companies talk about, oh, we've got to have corporate social responsibility. It's more a box to be checked than something they passionately believe in. I would say that what is happening here in the political arena in particular is that we have a dearth of leaders who have grand visions and who have the ability to communicate that grand visions, who really believe it. We need more I have a dream type leaders. Maybe they will arrive, I don't know. Right now, there's very few of them. Are there any? There is nobody that I can presently point to and say, this is that kind of leader. I was very optimistic when Barack Obama achieved the presidency, but uh, to be honest, I don't think he lived up to the potential that I thought he had. And right now, I, there's nobody that I could name and say, this is that person. Mm -hmm. But isn't it strange, actually, that neither of us can name such a leader and say, okay, if we had more of that and that person, uh, things would be different. Uh, that we can't even name one or two, you know? Yeah. It's kind of dramatic <laughs> yes. in a way. And I'm thinking, is there a reason for that? Is there a reason that there is, there is a bigger agenda, uh, that there should be no such leader because there are other forces at power? I mean, now I'm almost kind of speculating, <laughs> but <laughs> it, it's, it is a bit strange, right? Yes. So many people on this planet and we don't have that kind of leaders. Correct. But at the same time, I think that uh, in many respects. See, what happens is we look at the world and we see it's in turmoil. There's all kinds of populist forces uh, uh, let loose. There is more division than there has ever been. And that's what we see because that's what we've been conditioned to see in terms of uh, media. But on another level, we've never been in a better place. You know, just consider as recently as a 150 years ago, it was perfectly natural and acceptable for one human being to own another. And now there's widespread uh, recognition, no, this is not a good thing to do. Uh, yes, there still is slavery, but at least there's widespread opprobrium associated with it. Uh, there are more people now who are living at a sustainable level in the sense they have food, water, and so on than there ever been. There are fewer people dying in childbirth. There are fewer children dying in childbirth. So in many, many respects, we're living in a better situation than we have ever lived in all of recorded history. So we tend to forget that when we focus on the headlines of that. Yes, things are in turmoil, but in other areas, things are actually pretty good. So it's our job to not lose our sense of perspective, but to keep strengthening the things that are improving and uh, you know, work with the universe to make that happen. Media is in the business of selling attention because they make their money off advertising. So it is in their interest to play up uh, stuff which uh, makes you fearful. That's the nature of media, just the way it is. I think that uh, we are not being well served by the system that we set up for this. So we ought to recognize that and turn our focus on Yes, some things are bad, but there are so many things which are good and have never been better and work to continue making that happen. So true. And, uh, and also my final comment on these leaders, that we actually need to remember that we are all leaders. 
Yes. In that sense, I mean, you're inspiring somebody, I'm probably hopefully inspiring somebody and so on. And we can also see each individual as a perfect example yes. uh, to follow. So Absolutely. we don't have to wait for the big leader uh, either. Yes. So all the micro leaders that we are <laughs> together create a certain force. Absolutely. And when there are enough micro leaders, a big leader will emerge from that. Mm. It's going to happen. Mm. <laughs> Is there anything uh, that you would like to add or any aspect that we didn't cover that you feel are, is crucial? Yes. I think that as you go through, one Im very important thing that I talk about is we tend to be goal-obsessed. So I deal with uh, entrepreneurs, I deal with senior executives, I deal with CEOs. And for a majority of time, they have been taught that you ought to set a goal and you have to then undertake activities to achieve that goal. So they live on a sine curve oscillating between success and failure and success is you know, associated with elation and failure with despair. And they tend to spend more time on the despair end of the spectrum. It's a lousy way to live life. One of my principal teachings is to get persons to understand that the outcome is fundamentally outside your control. The goal is outside your control. Any of a number of factors you couldn't even think of can derail you. Give you a classic example. You know, we were supposed to meet today at 8.45 and I left well in time and I was stuck for 15 minutes on a subway. Just said, oh, the train in front of us is having mechanical problems. Mm. So because I had left enough leeway, you know, made it on time, but it's quite possible I might have missed it altogether. So even when you plan, things happen. They are outside your control. Recognize that. So goals are very important because the set direction, so set goals, even ambitious goals, but recognize that whether or not you reach it is fundamentally outside your control and make peace with that even as you're setting the goal. Then pour all of your attention into what are the actions that I can undertake to reach the goal. And you pour your emotional energy into that and you forget about the goal. And when you do that, two things happen. One, you actually begin to enjoy the journey. Mm -hmm. And really, the journey is the only thing you have, Vesna. The destination is a mirage. You get there, and then you're off someplace else. So when you invest in the process, not the outcome, you enjoy the journey, which is the only thing that you have. And paradoxically, when you let go of attachment to the outcome, the probability that you will get to the outcome you want actually increases and it increases exponentially. That is a secret that I would like to share with anyone who listens to the podcast and anyone elsewhere. Invest in the process, do not invest in the outcome. It's so valuable and true what you say. Uh, and still a lot of people out there are, you know, we're so much uh, judged by KPIs and stuff, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All of those are important, but don't be obsessed with them. That's my point. Mm. Set them up. They're good guideposts. But focus, pour your emotional energy on the actions, the activities. Thank you so much, Shrikumar. I um, just want to ask you, how was it to be on the podcast? Oh, on the very podcast? good. <laughs> you know, I had a very good sense of that right from the time you called. Otherwise, I wouldn't have agreed to do it because I get so many requests for, uh, for this. And I basically probably turned down 90% or more of them. 
but I just got a vibration from you and I uh, went on my intuition and said, okay, you know, we can make that happen if I come a little bit earlier. So we Thank did. You. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing it. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing everything. To find out more about Sri Kumar and his work, you can head to theraoinstitute.com and you can also follow him on social media. And I also highly recommend that you check out his TED Talks and, of course, read his books. And there is a list of all of those, of yes. course, on the website. So remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And I also truly appreciate if you share this episode with the people you know would benefit from hearing it. So thanks for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao. <laughs> Ciao. <Wonderful. laughs>